I caught a dogfish a couple of years ago, and I'd never seen a dogfish in the bay before, which is a little shark-like fish. It's really incredible. It's not as firm as like a mako or anything like that. It's just this really beautiful, tender, white flesh, delicious fish. Oh my God, my left arm. I couldn't move my left arm the next day. It was just ridiculous. Yeah, it was amazing. I love fishing anytime. Welcome to the Meals That Made Me from First We Feast. I'm Adam Richmond, your host and resident gastronaut. The meals that we make, enjoy, and share are the heart of who we are. In this series, you'll hear from 10 guests across the culinary world sharing funny, illuminating, and touching stories prompted by their most meaningful food memories. And maybe you'll even be inspired to make a few memorable meals of your own. So let's dive in. Eugenie Clark once said, sharing the fun of fishing turns strangers into friends in a few hours. Well, hopefully after a little bit of time with this incredible chef and avid fishing fan, we too will be all friends. With me today is someone I think of as a friend and is a true culinary icon, maker of some of the prettiest plates ever, the foie dumplings that will change your life and giver of stupendous hugs, the Michelin star holding global culinary superstar, Anita Lowe. While earning a degree in French language at Columbia University, she studied at Columbia's French Language Institute in Paris. She fell in love with Paris, especially its food culture, and vowed to return. With degrees in French language from Columbia University and Ecole Ritz-Escoffier graduating first in her class with honors, Chef Lowe opened Anissa, which means women in Arabic, an intimate upscale restaurant in Greenwich Village serving what she calls contemporary American cuisine. And it was an instant hit. And one of my personal favorites, earning a two-star review from the New York Times, Food & Wide magazine named her one of 10 best new chefs in America in 2001. She appeared on the first season of Iron Chef America, becoming the first challenger to win in Battle Mushroom! And defeating her competitor, Mario Batali, as well as appearing in the first season of Top Chef Masters. In 2015, Anita Lowe was the first female guest chef to cook for a state dinner at the White House under the Obama administration. Welcome, Chef Anita Lowe. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, so we've met like doing the food festival thing. And one of the first things that struck me and that made me want to meet you was, I'll never forget this. So in Battle Mushroom on Iron Chef, when you won, you had my single and maybe to this day favorite reaction of any chef who's won on Iron Chef. There was no fist pumping. There was no in your face. You literally like just went, oh, oh, oh my, okay. And it was just like so chill. You were so surprised. You were like almost tickled. Like, <laughs> oh, I I did. Okay, that's cool. And like you beasted it. It was just amazing. And the last thing I'll say by way of Hosanna here is, so I came up working with the Sushi Samba group and I used to walk past Anissa on the way back to my train. I would walk to the Q train by Waverly and I would walk past Anissa and I remember saying one day, one day I'm going to be able to afford to go there. Like I'm going to go because I knew who you were. I'd seen you on television 
I would go to like the Barnes and Noble at Union Square and read anything and everything you had written. And I remember when I finally had Man versus Food, you know, and I had a couple nickels to rub together and I took my girlfriend at the time. I was like, you have no idea like how long I've wanted to have this meal. So it's such an honor for me to to talk to you. And and I do mean what I say. You give insanely good hugs. You give great hugs. <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. Is that the secret? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was an outlier, so. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. No. And do you miss the Midwest, by the way? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. There, there's good things about the Midwest, but there's also a lot of bad things. But I, I'm more at home in New York City. Yeah. That's a perfect segue, because I want to start off talking about the meals of your childhood. You're from this incredibly multicultural family. Your mom's from Malaysia. Your dad's from Shanghai. You grew up in Michigan. And you had a Hungarian nanny. You've often spoken about her paprikash. We had African-American one. One had Mexican best friends. And you ate all their cuisine. And already right there, you have a blend of all these influences. And you fostered this interest in food at a young age. You traveled a lot with your family from Cape Cod to Malaysia to Iran. So you're absorbing all these different cultures, this incredible work ethic, this complex identity, this melting pot of ideas. And at the heart, it kind of strikes me, is this overwhelming appreciation for the, I guess you'd call it the connective unifying power of food. When you think about those childhood travels, are there any meals that stand out specifically from childhood while you were traveling the world? I mean, meals, I more like ingredient memories, from when I was really young, I have like ingredient yeah. memories. I have being in Iran and drinking cold yogurt uh-huh. out of like a thick glass bottle and having it just be so sour and not particularly liking it. But I just, I have, <laughs> yeah, but I, I have that that tactile memory. Um, I can remember mm. the feel of the bottle on my lips, you know. Mm. When I was in Malaysia, I remember eating fruit, like an orange when I was like two years old on my aunt's back porch and it was, you know, the fruit in Asia is just incredible. Yes. And it was so juicy that it was like dripping down my chin. It was just getting all over me. It was dripping down my <laughs> my t-shirt and like down my arms and like off my elbows. And I remember my mom <laughs> coming over to like come and clean me up. But yeah, I mean, I remember having a stuffed duck in San Francisco it was a deboned duck mm-hmm. that was stuck with sticky rice and like Ooh. a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, it was so delicious. I remember eating that. And then for dessert, we had those apples that are cooked in caramel. There's a mm. Chinese restaurant in San Francisco. It was, that was fantastic. Yeah. See, and I think it's just so cool that we can talk about like the simplicity of eating an orange, the tactile visceral memory of thick sour yogurt in a bottle or this exquisitely prepared duck or caramelized apples. But what do you miss the most about Malaysian flavors? Oh God. I mean, yeah, I have a lot of family still over there and they, uh-huh. yeah, chili crab. I need chili crab. Was there something about your mom's work as a doctor and caretaker of a family that you feel like influences the way you nurture and care for people like food? Cause you've often said, you know, Restaurant staff is like a family for you. 
Oh, for sure. And, you know, food is probably the major way that my mom showed her love on some level. You know, I, I just always believed that, you know, if you're feeding your staff poorly, it's just going to reflect um, on the restaurant on some level. And you can't have your staff respect food if you're feeding them bad stuff. You know, it doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I think that was definitely important. I'm a mama's boy. Through and through, the tattoo on my left arm is a tribute to my mom. It's a it's a train saying I think <laughs> thing I think I can a little tribute to the little engine that could, big for my mom. And your mom was not only a doctor; she's one of the first female doctors in this country. And you've been very vocal about saying that you know she's making a fraction of what your dad was, and she would work ten to twelve hour days, then come home, and put six dishes on the table. And when you said this in an interview, I want you to know it really struck a chord with me personally, but I want to ask you, what were the dishes after 10, 12 hour days? And let's be like, she's a doctor. Her mind is playing, you know, 4D chess all day. What were the dishes your mom made coming home? How labor intensive were they? And I can't imagine it was very easy, especially in Michigan, to get Malaysian ingredients. So... Did her food lean into Midwestern ingredients or flavors? We had a range of things. I mean, when she came to this country, she went to school in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where she learned how to make fried chicken. We would have fried chicken every once in a while. Yeah, we would have lamb chops, sometimes just broiled. We would have salmon just broiled, that, that sort of thing. But then she would make things like, you know, chicken curry, a lot of different Chinese ingredients. I mean, she was Chinese-Malaysian. I mean, the red cooking was something that my mom would often make. It's a very simple dish. It's, you know, a braise made with soy sauce, sometimes a little bit of sugar, sometimes not. My mom didn't use a lot of sugar. She was a doctor. And then <laughs> star anise, cinnamon, and then usually some other stuff, maybe some shiitake, some ginger, that sort of thing. And then you could cook various things in it, chicken, duck, pork, you know, et cetera beef. And um, yeah, and she would often add like a hard boiled egg to it or some fried tofu just to sop up those sauce. And then you eat it with um, rice. Mm. Let's move on to the meals of your mentors. You've pointed out to interviewers in the past that you speak French. And as I showed off to you in the very beginning of this, moi aussi, je parle français. I love speaking French as well. You're trained in French cooking. You identify very strongly with this training. You just talked about how it influenced the foie in this iconic dish for which you became known at Anissa. But oftentimes when people try to pigeonhole you as a quote-unquote Asian chef and call you to answer questions about Chinese cuisine, one of the things that I personally love is that you call your cooking contemporary American. I actually heard you say in an interview once, and this may be one of my favorite, favorite quotes about food full stop. You said a dish is like a text. We will not read it the same way. We won't receive it the same way. And I think that's beautiful. And you said, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. That's why it is contemporary American. And I agree, the American palate is shaped by every country around the world. You know, burger, fries, and Coke. You have the sandwich name for the town in Germany. The fries are Belgian. Um, but going back to France, I want you to take me back to the Ecole Ritz Escoffier days in Paris that preceded your restaurants 
and who your early mentors were in those days of learning French cuisine. I mean, you were interning under Guy Savoie and Michel Rostang. So my question is, was there one dish that they or another chef you admired put together that inspired your love of French cooking? At Michel Rostand, there was a there was a foie gras terrine. I mean, it was actually a torchon, meaning it was like a little round thing. But they put langoustines through the center, and then a little Ooh. tiny dice of mirepoix around it, and then rolled that in the middle of like whole lobes of foie gras, and then poached it, and then they served it on a plate with you know, leek greens that had been blanched that were just cut to, like, make the plate completely green. It was it was just gorgeous. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I always remember that dish. But I just, I love that marriage of foie gras and langoustine or foie gras and lobster. It's just really delicious. So I want to ask you about being featured in an exhibition at the Museum of Chinese in America titled Sour, Sweet, Bitter, and Spicy. App descriptors for my love life, actually. Which, uh, <laughs> but that's for me and my therapist. Which explored how Chinese food is defined and interpreted through the personal stories of Chinese and Asian American chefs. Now, you were one of the chefs featured, and the dish that you selected and is featured in the accompanying cookbook was steak tartare with bulgur, cinnamon, and sesame tofu sauce which seemed to me like this epic fusion of sort of Chinese and Lebanese. So I'd love if you could talk to us just a little bit about the genesis of that dish and the process of selecting it for this moment. Could you walk me through the play-by-play of kind of how it's made and why you selected it for the exhibition? Because it feels like this was one of those big moments of your career. You know, my, my partner is, her dad was Lebanese. Mm. And every Christmas he would make kibinai, which is, you know, basically steak tartare with, mixed with bulgur. And it was just always one of my favorite things. And, you know, it was made with um, silken tofu and tahini, I believe, and some garlic, lemon. There was a little bit of black sesame paste on there, too. And then there was something crunchy on top that I think was actually also Chinese, and I just don't remember what that was. Aging brain, so. <laughs> oh, you know, something you, you have forgotten more about cooking than most people will ever learn. So I'm sure <laughs> whatever you care to share is going to be deeply enlightening. So I want to talk about your cookbook, Solo, a modern cookbook for a party of one. When you came up with the concept for Solo, was there one meal you immediately knew you had to include in the book, whether it was inspired by a breakup or time at boarding school or just simply a love of solitude? Because as an only child who is almost at the half century mark, unmarried with no children, I too have cooked many a solo meal. <laughs> so was there one meal that you knew you had to include in the book and, and what period of solo time was it from? You know, I had, we did Valentine's Day every year, of course, at Anissa. And, you know, Valentine's Day is such a kitschy holiday. And we really kitched it up. We would do, it would be sort of fun because then you could cut things into heart shapes and do all the, you know, red ingredients and stuff like that. And then we did hearts of things and hearts of palm, hearts of artichoke, whatever it was. But I would always include something for the 
person that was alone. And I think it started when I was at Maxime's, but there was one that I made for this friend of mine who I dated for about two weeks, and I was just smitten. And I made this dish that the year after we had dated that was a Arctic char, which is farmed in Iceland, with hot dates and a cold shower of skier. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, I had that in there. I think there was something else in there, but yeah. <laughs> I love that, especially the play on hot dates and a cold shower of skier. Now, I understand that the steamer clam is symbolic for you. Your parents rented a house in Cape Cod when you were a child, and you grew up actually digging for these goodies. You've described the experience of clamming as very primal. These days, you're an avid fan of fishing, and I guess I feel that your mantra of self-love through the best means possible. Delicious food comes into play when you think about putting your toes in the sand to search for fresh clams to eat and share and spread the love. So my question, Chef, is could you talk to me a little bit about the feeling that fishing brings you? You describe a memorable day on the water in recent years, maybe during the pandemic when you needed a bit of peace and quiet, when you fished and cooked a meal with your catch. What was the meal that you made? Side question, do you really eat raw scallops in the walk-in? <laughs> I did. I have. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Andrew Zimmern, take note. <laughs> but going back to what was the meal you made with this catch that was so healing for you? And Do you have a favorite meal you like to cook with seafood? I caught a dogfish a couple of years ago, and I just had never seen a dogfish in the bay before. And for the longest time... You know, people in this area would treat them like trash fish, but it's like what people in Britain will use for fish and chips. But it, yeah, it's really incredible. It's not, it's not as firm as like a mako or anything like that, but it's just yeah. this really beautiful, like tender, just white flesh, delicious fish. I just made a stew with it, like a real simple, oh, wow. simple fish stew with tomatoes and probably clam juice. But yeah, it just really was incredibly delicious. Is there a fish that you've never caught that you want like to challenge yourself and try or a different kind of seafood? Do you want to go lobstering or leg crab pots? Or do you want to, you know, go on the Bonita run or try to catch a marlin or something? Is All there of one? It. All of it. Do I you have your like Santiago old man in the sea vibes? Like you're like, I'm going to get this son of a bitch. Oh, I am dying to go tuna fishing. I have never caught a tuna. You know, it's really expensive to get a charter and you have to go pretty far out from Long Island. But yeah, I I would love to go do that. I'm a little bit scared of it because, you know, they can be so huge and I just, I know I can't pull in, you know, I'm hoping to catch like a 50 pounder, you know, like, but you know, you can catch a 600 pound tuna. Like, I don't know how you yeah, do of that. Course. Yeah. How would you serve it? Oh God. I mean, well, you got to eat some of it raw first, of course. You have to. You have, have to. to. And you got to eat all the different parts. Gosh, yeah. Sear it. Uh, you got to make some um, confit with some parts. Yeah, so many different ways to, to make it. I eat all different parts. I mean, I, we served tuna bone marrow at Anissa back in the day. Damn. Yeah. I mean, it was part of a bigger dish. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't like waste. And I think it's interesting to use all of the animal if you can, you know. Of course. All right, so I want to get to the meals of your dreams. I'll project a little fantasy. It's the year 2030. 30 years after Anissa originally opened, first we feast 
hosts an event celebrating your menu, invites your pals, Wynton Marsalis, David Byrne. I can't believe you're actually tight with these people. Wynton Marsalis, David Byrne, Devo, Barack and Michelle Obama. You want to put the best dishes on the table, showcase your latest and greatest culinary inspirations and developments. So just tell us what you might serve, what might be on the menu. Just give me a dish or two. Oh, gosh, that's a hard one. I think, you know, I think it's probably going to be a lot more ingredient driven than what I used to do at Anissa. Not that it wasn't ingredient driven there, but I've become simpler and perhaps more rustic as I get older. It, I, I'm obsessed with Italian food right now for some reason. What region? Any particular region of Italy? Anywhere. I mean, we did a, a Sicily trip three months ago that was just incredible. I did pasta with fresh tuna roe which is apparently like oh, a classic my. thing there. It was so fun. And so maybe that will be on the menu if I can find tuna roe. That's incredible. Fresh tuna roe. Oh, my God. I would probably make, you know, use some vegetables from my friend's farm, early girl on out in Brookhaven mm-hmm. uh, on Long Island. All right. Well, now I want to move in. We always, always like to leave our listeners with a little rapid fire segment where you answer a few questions about your favorite, whatever, no right answers, no wrong answers. You ready? Sure. Okay. Best pizza topping? Pepperoni cups. Love it. Most popular answer. I feel like Steve Harvey. Number one (laughs) answer on the board. Best vegetable to eat raw? Kohlrabi. Oh, deep cut. Favorite cookbook of all time? Joy of Cooking. Favorite condiment? Laogan Ma. Best dip for French fries? Mustard. Dijon. Whoa, okay. Sorry, blew my mind. Favorite fast food item? In-N-Out Burger. Double-double animal style? Yeah, double-double animals. <laughs> I just can't mess with those fries, though. The fries just... Yeah, the, the fries are bad, yeah. They're missing me on that one. Yeah. Favorite song you like to cook to? I love Macy Gray. Any particular song? I try. Let's do I try. I love it. I love it. I try to walk away and I stumble. Favorite kitchen appliance? The microplane or hand blender. I'm an immersion guy myself. Hell yeah. Okay. And we always have one special one to wrap out for that particular guest. So this one for you, they're short answers, but it's a multi-parter. Okay. Do you have a favorite French song? Un soir un chien by the Rita Mixer. The last two quick parts of the Tour de France right here. Do you have a favorite arrondissement or neighborhood in Paris? Le Marais. I live there. Le Marais, beautiful, beautiful area. And finally, wrapping it up, what is your favorite French cafe like order? Oh, it depends on the day. But every morning when I lived there, I used to go get my coffee, which would just be a cafe au lait. And I would get mm-hmm. the marron glacé, those uh, like sort of candied chestnuts. But you could buy mm. them in pieces, like so they're cheaper because I was there when I was a student. <laughs> and you could just get like a little bag of these like broken marron glacé. And so that would be my breakfast every morning. All right. Honestly, I love that you are forever evolving. I mean every word I say. Anytime I do these food festivals, it's always just this big cavalcade of personalities and events and responsibilities. And every time I see you, you are the eye of the storm. You're just always so warm, so sweet, so nice to talk to, so chill. 
I've loved your food and whatever you do next, count me in. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and for sharing so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, great to see you again. And thank you guys for listening and for joining us for the meals that made me. We hope you enjoyed this career spanning interview with Chef Anita Lowe and that you are inspired to dive deeper into the meals of your childhood, your mentors, your travels and the meals that continue to take you places now and into the future. Chef, where can people find you on social? What do you got coming up next? Plug away www.chefanitalow.com that's my website I am at Anita Low NYC A-N-I-T-A-L-O NYC on both Instagram and Twitter I am not on Facebook and www.tourdeforks F-O-R-K-S can find all the culinary trips that I, I help to lead amazing so look up Tour de Forks Chef Anita Lowe, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you join us next time as we talk with my homie, rapper extraordinaire, the goon with the spoon, multi-platinum hip-hop icon, E-40. He's going to be talking about his journey as a chef and food entrepreneur. You are not going to want to miss it. This podcast is produced by First We Feast in collaboration with Complex Networks. Our host is me, Adam Richman. Our executive producers are Chris Schoenberger, Nicola Lynch, and Justin Bolas. Our head of podcast production is Jen Stewart. Our supervising producer is Shiva Bayat. Our senior producer is Jocelyn Aram. Our associate producers are Nina Pollock and Catherine Hernandez. Our production managers are Shamara Rochester and Natasha Bennett. Our recording engineer and sound designer is Andrew Guastella. Thanks to the team at BuzzFeed. For more First We Feast content, head to youtube.com slash First We Feast or at First We Feast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you enjoy these interviews and you want to hear more, then please drop a five-star review and we... We'll see you next time on The Meals That Made Me.